0: This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. To many Americans, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. stood on opposite sides of some of the most important questions about civil rights. But historians say that was always an oversimplification, and new scholarship proves it.
1: We think of Malcolm X as this kind of reverse racist, angry black man. We think of King as this kind of teddy bear because it serves our purposes of saying, look, America makes mistakes but we can correct it.
0: Reexamining the myths about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. Coming up on a word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us.
2: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
0: Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Today, May 19th, is the 98th anniversary of the birth of Malcolm Little, who came to be known to the rest of us as Malcolm X. Malcolm X, who later changed his name to El Hajj Malik al-Shabazz, converted to Islam in prison. It helped him transform himself from a petty criminal to the most prominent spokesperson for the nation of Islam and for a vision of black liberation that put every tool on the table.
3: We declare our rank on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be respected as a human being, to be given the rights of a human being in this society, on this earth, in this day, which we intend to bring into existence by any means necessary.
0: Speeches like that put Malcolm X in sharp contrast to the nonviolence movement led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who, while reviled by much of the white community in his life, has become the favorite civil rights leader of most white Americans in his death. Part of the mythology built around Dr. King was his vocal condemnation of Malcolm X, who King reportedly said, quote, has done himself and our people a great disservice. Except King never said that. Beyond that misquote, the distance between Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, especially as their work evolved, was not as great as popularly reported. And more scholars are working to re-examine the history of that relationship and the implications for what we think we know about the civil rights era. Joining us to talk about it is Peniel Joseph. He's the author of several books, including The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. He's the Barbara Jordan Chair in Ethics and Political Values and the founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy, all at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Peniel Joseph, welcome to A Word. Thank you, Jason. There's this passage from Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1965 Playboy interview where he talks about Malcolm X that was recently exposed as false or at least doubtful. Here's the quote. In his litany of articulating the despair of the Negro without offering any positive creative alternative, I feel that Malcolm has done himself and our people a great disservice. King also reportedly said, quote, fiery demagogic oratory in the black ghettos, urging Negroes to arm themselves and prepare to engage in violence, as he has done, can reap nothing but grief. What did King actually say? And how was this discrepancy just recently discovered? King doesn't say
1: anything about being a fiery demagogue in, in the actual quote. In fact, it's a it's a sort of very mild and subtle rebuke or critique. And King says, hey, I don't profess to know all the answers, but I wish sort of he was more hopeful. And the way in which Jonathan Eig, who's really a terrific biographer, who's written a great biography of Muhammad Ali and now a great biography of uh, King, what he discovered, which good historians and journalists do, is that he looked for the transcript of the original interview. And he found the transcript. And the transcript's an 84-page transcript, which he surmises was directly typed up by Alex Haley's secretary at the time. And historians and scholars and folks have looked to it as obviously a legitimate source, because part of our archival material is newspapers. But we're also aware as as historians and as journalists, that um, newspapers can make mistakes. They can misquote people. The real problem here is Alex Haley. And we've kind of always known that Alex Haley is a complicated figure. He was accused of plagiarizing a portion of Roots, which becomes his bestseller in 1977, Um, 76, and then becomes a a great television series in 77. And there are sequels. And Alex Haley becomes a multimillionaire because of that. Part of what makes Alex Haley problematic in the 60s is that he, like all of us who have been Black writers and really in a different historical time period, is really suffering and trying to make a living as a freelance writer. That was harder then than it is now, as tough as that might be for people to believe, right? And so He was constantly in search of getting more advances. There's a good biography of him by Robert Norell I've reviewed. And, you know, he at times would exaggerate what somebody was saying. At times he would embellish um, all to sort of make good copy. And certainly the King misquote becomes especially problematic because Alex Haley is the person who Malcolm X collaborated on for his posthumously published best-selling autobiography, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, As Told to Alex Haley, which is published in October 1965, eight months after Malcolm's assassination.
0: Were there other instances where King talked about Malcolm X that, that should have been probably part of our public discourse that maybe balance this out? Did he ever talk about him in other times?
1: He did. One of the things about King and Malcolm is this, when we look at the historical records so far, most of the time... Malcolm X is the person who's more willing to publicly call Dr. King out and not the reverse. So, what King does most of the time is very diplomatically talk about sort of the Muslims, the nation of Islam. So, King will say, Hey, this is the reason why the Muslim movement is gaining traction because we're not passing enough civil rights legislation. Malcolm is going to call King by his name and actually at times call him an Uncle Tom. That's going to soften up by the time, really, even before Malcolm leaves the Nation of Islam, you can see he's sort of of two mindsets about King. He's both inspired in certain ways by King's impact in places like Birmingham. He's also resentful and says King is using children and women uh, where men should be fighting, right? I think Malcolm, and I say in my book about Malcolm and King, I think Malcolm has a fundamental misunderstanding of nonviolence, as practiced by Dr. King, because as practiced by Dr. King, nonviolence is muscular, it's powerful, it's coercive. And King says as much, I think in some ways, King's biggest repudiation of Malcolm is a speech that most people don't talk about in May of 1963 in Los Angeles, where there's maybe over 20,000 people are there. Sammy Davis is there. He gives Dr. King a $20,000 check right on the spot For what's going on in Birmingham. And in that speech, King has one of the most forceful defenses of nonviolence ever. But I argue he's really speaking to Malcolm. And what he says in that speech is that the real courageous people are the people practicing nonviolence. Because it's so muscular, it's so potent, you have to put your life on the line. And he says, that the real moral cowards are the people who can't practice nonviolence. And every time I see that speech, I'm smiling. just I, I'm cracking up because he never mentions Malcolm X. He never mentions Malcolm X. But Malcolm has been dogging him in the papers in Birmingham saying, he's a coward, real men don't put their women and children on the line. And King is in Los Angeles and he's, he lays it straight and says, this is what, you have to be the most manliest man to practice nonviolence, And I love that.
0: I want to play this particular clip because the perception of their disagreement wasn't just about the way in which they resisted. Some of it had to do with ideology. And and here's a clip, uh, a very famous one of Malcolm X calling out Dr. King. And I want to get your thoughts on the other side.
3: The white man pays Reverend Martin Luther King, subsidizes Reverend Martin Luther King, so that Reverend Martin Luther King can continue to teach the Negroes to be defenseless. That's what you mean by nonviolent. Be defenseless. Be defenseless in the face of one of the most cruel uh, beasts that has ever taken the people into captivity. That's this American white man. And they have proved it throughout the country by the police dogs and the police clubs. A hundred years ago they used to put on a white sheet and use a bloodhound against Negroes. Today they have taken off the white sheet and put on police uniforms they uh, traded in the bloodhounds for police dogs, and they're still doing the same thing. And just as Uncle Tom, back during slavery, used to keep... The Negroes from resisting the bloodhound or resisting the Ku Klux Klan by teaching them to to love their enemy or pray for those who use them despitefully. Today, uh, Martin Luther King is just a 20th century or modern Uncle Tom or a religious Uncle Tom who is doing the same thing today to keep Negroes defenseless in the face of attack that Uncle Tom did on the plantation to keep those Negroes defenseless in in the face of the attacks of the Klan in that day. Those are fighting words.
0: Was Malcolm's idea that if I call him out in this personal fashion that that will elicit change in him like why did he go there
1: i think for the longest time and i think they converge by 63 64 65 near the end i think that they fundamentally are pushing two different concepts you know to boil down what malcolm is articulating is a philosophy of radical black dignity to boil down what king is articulating is a philosophy of radical black citizenship and we can sort of break that down so for malcolm Dignity is the God-given humanity we are all born with. For Malcolm, dignity is what Black people have, but has never been recognized in the United States. And at times, because of the racial trauma they've been through, they fail to recognize their own dignity and that they are connected to Africa, the third world, the Middle East in powerful ways that make them a global majority, right? King is looking for citizenship, and citizenship is really just the external recognition of dignity, and Malcolm really criticizes King for doing this because he feels that the United States is a morally reprehensible um, and politically evil place and space, whereas King is going to counter that we need radical citizenship that goes beyond voting rights and civil rights that is everything from food justice, ending violence, decent housing fit for human beings, all these things. So I think Malcolm for a long time, and I think what you see in terms of the transformation is that he comes to see that we need dignity and citizenship. But I argue that Dr. King comes to see we need dignity and citizenship too. That's what makes it so extraordinary. So again, Malcolm... Is angry. There's a quote where he tells um, the journalist that Black people are getting angry, and he concludes by saying, and I'm the angriest. Now, okay, what is Malcolm X angry about? Well, two examples. One is 1957 in Little Rock Central High School. Dr. King sends Eisenhower a telegram thanking the president for those troops. Malcolm X is outraged. And the reason why Malcolm X is outraged is in 57, Malcolm says that this is a truly sick society if you're trying to send Black girls into that Little Rock Central High School and you need military troops right to protect their dignity. So for Malcolm, it's not a celebration. And that's why they, they see this in a dichotomous ways. What's so interesting is that By the middle 60s and the early 60s, they both come to pull each other in the the, the other person's direction. So you see Malcolm coming to say the ballot or the bullet and saying, well, voting rights really matter, even if he's saying it in a militant way. But you start to see King say that you know, Black is beautiful and it's so beautiful to be Black. King starts to say that all Americans, white Americans, have subconscious or what he calls unconscious racism. King breaks with Lyndon Johnson. There's no more meetings with LBJ. There's no more photo ops by 67. So what's extraordinary about them is that Malcolm is angry because he feels that King is not acknowledging Black people's human dignity. But over time, they both come to see that the the, the quest and the struggle is for dignity and citizenship. And so the reason why Malcolm is so angry is that Malcolm makes an argument that if Black people were citizens, we adjudicated this during the Civil War. Why do we need protests? He's saying he'd be fine with brotherhood if there wasn't violence against Black people. And all of this should have been solved with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Reconstruction Amendments.
0: There's been a desire to make these men polar opposites. Who benefited from That narrative? Why is it that there was such a distinct effort to make it seem like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King uh, were at odds with each other? Yeah, they may have had some disagreements, but they were a lot closer than people want to admit. But that's not the story we got for 60 years.
1: I think who benefits is really the story and the supporters and the narrative of American exceptionalism. For a long time, really, really the first 15 years after King's death, American exceptionalism didn't have room to support Dr. King and to put him within their narrative because the country remembered King as this sort of fiery leader, the very kind of demagogue that the misquote (laughs) attributes to Malcolm X. By the end of his life, uh, white folks were calling Dr. King a demagogue. The president wouldn't meet with him. He's speaking out against the Vietnam War he's saying America is going to go to hell. And it's so interesting. One of King's last speeches was about America going to hell. And one of Malcolm X's last speeches was about America going to hell and white supremacy. So it's just so interesting in terms of these two preachers. So I think that dichotomous, that whole idea of Malcolm as King's evil twin or doppelganger only helps a narrative of American exceptionalism That retcons King, but only to the extent that he makes us all look good. And that's why Lyndon Johnson accepted the Nobel Peace Prize and said, the Nobel Peace Prize, this is not just about you, Dr. King, it's about the whole country and how we're getting better on this racial progress tip, right? Even though it was King doing all that work and the movement within King and all those black women and the grassroots doing the work, right? So I think that the reason why we still we think of Malcolm X as this kind of reverse racist, angry Black man. We think of King as this kind of teddy bear is because it serves our purposes of saying, look, America makes mistakes, but we can correct it. We're a self-correcting country where, and Barack Obama said this too, he said, hey, we're constantly trying to perfect our union because Obama's a big believer in American exceptionalism. And and he was such a big believer in American exceptionalism, it got all of us excited about a narrative of American exceptionalism for a moment where, where we could be in there too. And you know, I mean, and we're all still implicated because even some of the fiercest critics of the country at times work for the New York Times, at times we have access as professors And multimedia access. So it doesn't mean somehow we are modern day Uncle Tom's, but it's complicated.
0: We're going to take a short break when we come back more on re examining Malcolm X. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned.
2: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're
0: listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about Malcolm X and his relationship with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with Professor Peniel Joseph. This is the thing. I find this interesting when I think of Malcolm X. Where did Malcolm lead Martin when it came to the movement and the struggle in, in human rights?
1: Well, Malcolm is ahead head of King on the idea of America as a police state and mass incarceration, uh, the criminal justice system. Malcolm had been incarcerated for 77 months as a juvenile delinquent, as, a, as somebody who committed burglary, uh, as somebody who abused drugs. Malcolm pushes back against that system in real time, negotiates with police captains and big city police chiefs in New York and Los Angeles. It really takes King's visit after the Harlem Rebellion of 1964 for him to really begin to see the depth and breadth of racial injustice in the United States. And certainly, Watts puts him over the top. And Malcolm has already been assassinated by August of 65. Another place he led was in the international arena. Dr. King, yes, goes to Ghana in 1957, yes, goes to India in 1959 for a month-long trip, has a critique of colonialism. But the person who's got the anti-imperialist, anti-colonial critique is really Malcolm X because of the visits to Africa in 1959 for five weeks. And then um, really two extraordinary visits in 1964, five-week pilgrimage from April to May for the Hajj. Uh, And then 19 weeks from July to November of 1964. And what's so interesting here is that it's really Malcolm who criticizes the war in Vietnam before Dr. King does. Uh, It's really Malcolm who criticizes the idea of American empire in really powerful ways that Dr. King is going to then take up. And then finally, when you say human rights, it's really important here. It's Malcolm X who in a very pointed way says that what we are engaged in is a human rights struggle. And certainly Malcolm leads with a kind of revolutionary pan-Africanism that's really also pragmatic. So Malcolm is meeting with folks in Cairo, in Saudi Arabia, in Ghana, in Nigeria, in Tanzania, in Monrovia, just all over. And What's important for us to understand with Malcolm's revolutionary Pan-Africanism, Jason, Malcolm is the person who schools Cassius Clay and Muhammad Ali on what it means to be a world Black global citizen and human rights activism. All of Muhammad Ali's future activism is because of Malcolm X, not because of Elijah Muhammad, not because of the Nation of Islam. It's because of Malcolm X. That's documented and verifiable. Like Malcolm publicly tells him, I believed you were a champ before you defeated Liston. Malcolm sees that genius. He's the older brother. Malcolm is 38 years old to Clay's 22 years old. And I call him Clay on purpose. He's called Muhammad Ali by Elijah Muhammad in a power play to take Cassius Clay away from Malcolm X and Malcolm X creating a new Muslim mosque, Inc. with Cassius Clay as the bankroll for that, right? So when we think about how did, Malcolm X lead. And sometimes people, my students ask me, what did Malcolm do? What's the policy intervention? Because they know about King and this legislation and stuff. And I tell them, we were all Negroes before, before Malcolm X. Malcolm X turned us into Black people. There's no piece of legislation. He transformed our mindsets and our consciousness to make us believe that we were beautiful And again, Malcolm is a forerunner. When we think about Afrocentricity and people who love Black people, Malcolm is constantly talking about how special and important Africa is, not for what Black Americans can teach Africa, but for the reverse. He's saying, we have to go over there and sit at the knee of these Africans and learn what dignity means. That's what he's saying, despite colonialism. So he's so brilliant, but he has so much, uh, Jason, humility.
0: Eventually- king and malcolm x become closer politically but they only met once in 1964 in washington dc theologian james cone talked about it for a 2018 al jazeera documentary i want to play you this clip
2: malcolm x always wanted to meet king and debate with king but king always refused to meet with malcolm Largely because he knew that if he met with Malcolm, support from the white community would be almost eliminated.
0: So I'm, I'm fascinated by this. It sort of reveals the, the real limitations financially and, and symbolically that Martin Luther King was operating within. But also, what did it mean that these guys only met one time? Because that's amazing to me. It's amazing to me that in all their travels around the country, around the world, that they never even had a private meeting. And it was only this one time where we see the one famous picture of them laughing. What's the significance of of these two powerful individuals only meeting one time yet sharing the same country.
1: I agree with James Cohn partially. I think there's more reasons why King didn't meet him, but I think he felt he would be hurt politically if he did. And I would say that in December of 1964, Malcolm is in the audience and listens to an entire speech by King, and that's the second time. He listened to the March on Washington, but he's at the Harlem 369th Armory around December 16th, 17th of 64. King has just come back from the Nobel Prize winning tour. Malcolm has just come back from his second tour, and he listens to King's speech. He's sitting next to Andrew Young, who becomes later ambassador United Nations and, and mayor of Atlanta and a congressman. And so when we think about Malcolm, Malcolm is more interested in pursuing coalitions with King because King has a broader, more tangible base domestically. I would say that Malcolm actually has a bigger and broader and more tangible base internationally than King does while they're still alive. And what most people don't know is that Malcolm actually had an office at the United Nations that was given to him courtesy of, of African and Cuban diplomats. And so people at the United N- UN knew Malcolm and would see him and he'd come in and out. And that's how, by the time he goes to the Middle East in 1959, and then he spends almost six months abroad in 1964, He's visiting in Cairo at the Cuban embassy, and he's. they all know who he is. All the the, the diplomats and their apparatchiks, their their, their lieutenants, know who Malcolm X is. And that's what he gives to Muhammad Ali. And he sets up Muhammad Ali's tour of Africa, literally, even though by this point, Muhammad Ali is no longer speaking to him out of fear of Elijah Muhammad and the violence uh, that could happen to him in the nation of Islam. So I think what it means in terms of them not speaking to each other it's a real lost opportunity and it does show us the way in which the movement was financed because i'll disagree with malcolm of saying somehow king was a tool of white folks but what i will say is that certainly the movement relied on a lot of money from white philanthropists
0: when you look at these two men there's so much that's also said about uh, you know their their need for each other that they needed each other at the same time i've always thought the idea of the sort of good cop, bad cop narrative about MLK and Malcolm X to be reductionist. The idea that Martin Luther King was like, well, I need Malcolm X out there to scare the white folks, right? You know, because I can tell them, hey, hey, either either listen to me or you get this guy. Or that Malcolm X knew he was playing the role. He knew he was playing the boogeyman because deep, deep down, he really wanted to go along with King's dream. I don't buy either of those theories, but what did they buy, right? How did they see themselves at the time The Malcolm X really think I'm playing this sort of pantomime game with King and whichever one of us lasts, it's still going to be the benefit of our people. Did Malcolm X really think like, now this dude is wrong until they came to a point later on in their lives where they're like, okay, yeah, we're actually in about 97% agreement.
1: I, I think it's an evolution. I think that for a lot of Malcolm's public career, which is 1952 to 1965, he thinks of King as dead wrong. I think there's a switch in 63, because I think during Malcolm's last year in the Nation of Islam, he realizes that it's going to be his last year in the Nation of Islam. And I think that for a number of reasons, both for what's going on internally in the organization, but also their refusal to um, take political stances, even as he keeps defying Elijah Muhammad and taking those political stances. So I think he understands it's going to be his last year. He's got a great interview with Robert Penn Warren which is published posthumously in Who Speaks for the Negro and I quote it in The Sword and the Shield where Robert Penn Warren is asking him about King and differences and he says that Dr. King and I actually agree on a lot of things and we we want black freedom for the Negro. And he, we might have different methods, but we we agree on the same goal. We have the same ambition and the same end goal. And so when you look at 64, Jason, throughout 64, he's sending King telegrams, inviting him to stuff. He's saying uh, from overseas, that he would send some 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 Black folks in there to St. Augustine, Florida, where King is involved in civil rights struggles and night marches and people are being beaten on the beaches, Black people of St. Augustine, Florida. He goes to see King in Harlem uh, on December 17th. But then February 5th, 1965, he goes to Selma to see King again. And King is in prison and jail for a demonstration. But also, he has a great meeting with Coretta Scott King. And Coretta Scott King, who's really this brilliant you know, activist and strategist in her own right, she recounts in her own uh, memoir how she found Malcolm to be so sincere and so impressive, right, this is Coretta Scott King, that she lost all the whole thing of like, this man has like sort of denigrated my 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 husband. And I don't know if people could do that now, activists today now, because because a lot of times people don't wanna forgive Jason. So there's this whole thing where Malcolm publicly apologizes to folks and says, I hope they forgive me and I'll forgive anything anybody has said about me. What's so interesting is they realize that they are serving as a foil for each other in the mind of a certain public. But throughout 64, if anything, Malcolm is trying to reframe his image through different postcards and essays and different things that he writes from overseas and domestically away from that image of him as sort of talking about white people as devils and away from this image, oh, Malcolm is some reverse racist, uh, really towards the image of coalition building, multiracial coalition building, but still being a revolutionary and still evolving in his Muslim faith. He's a work in progress. And I will say this, King issues a really nice statement after Malcolm X's assassination, which is probably... The best, most complex statement King issues about him saying that Malcolm was um, brilliant. He had all this talent. And instead of using the talent to be some, some kind of underworld mob boss or something, he just used it for his people and stuff. And we, we're going to miss him on this world stage and this global stage. And he was a part of the struggle. And I, I sort of grieve with the people who are grieving for Malcolm.
0: We're gonna take a short break and we come back more about re-examining Malcolm X with Professor Peniel Joseph. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to a word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about Malcolm X with author and scholar Peniel Joseph. I always wonder what would this person think today? Malcolm X comes back, right? He comes back at the age that he was killed. He comes back, you know, in 2023. What would he say about today's? Activism. What would he say about what he sees in today's America?
1: I think Malcolm X would be both proud of aspects of what he sees, especially with the Black Lives Matter March. I think he would be troubled by the racial backlash. And I also think he would be troubled by the fact that a lot of these organizations are not fully supported by the Black community, where you can have autonomy and independence. And another thing he'd be troubled by is really we've seen an erosion, Jason. Of the Pan-African solidarities in quote, solidarities plural. We're all in this together. Malcolm is really the Pan-African revolutionary of the 20th century. You know, I, I would, you know, he's right there with Nkrumah and these people who lead nation states. And I argue he becomes Black America's really official prime minister by 1964. Everybody knows. And what's so interesting, Jason, is that when he goes to these other countries, they all give him official dignitary status. Somebody who's got no elected title. Somebody who's got no PhD, somebody who's not this best-selling author, because everyone knows, everybody actually knows, right? So they realize that he is the representative of of sort of the black working class, the black grassroots. So I think he would be emboldened by the way in which we had an uprising over the death of George Floyd, who was not a famous black person. Um, but I think he would be troubled by again our lack of self-determination in terms of funding, um, how, we, how we've gotten caught up with these funding models that really force us to constrain the message. I think one, one of the reasons why he was so powerful is that his funding model was really just always Black people. He was not looking for funding from, from people outside of our community in that sense.
0: So much of what we know about Malcolm X was shaped by his autobiography. It was written by Alex Haley. And there have been lots of concerns about Alex Haley's writing, and certainly in recent years. What is something that concerns you about what we may also be missing because of Alex Haley's writing about Malcolm X? And what's something that you definitely want the audience to know about Malcolm X going forward on this 98th birthday of his?
1: I think the thing that concerns me, when you think about the autobiography and the way it was packaged with the intro by Alex Haley and maybe the outro by um, Mike Handler, the, the the reporter, there's a kind of definitely a liberal framing of, of Malcolm as this kind of Horatio Alger story. We later found out that there were three chapters that were Malcolm wanted in the autobiography that Alex Haley uh, did not allow in the autobiography that sort of better explain his notion of political self-determination, black nationalism, his anti-colonialism. So that's concerning. So in a way, the autobiography might be people's most recognizable entree into Malcolm X. But I would say, you know, you, you want to definitely read the biography by the biographies by Manning Marable and by Les Payne and Tamara Payne, all the, these very award-winning biographies, and also just read Malcolm's um, speeches. Definitely read his speeches. The thing I would want people to know about Malcolm is just what a a wonderfully human and humane and vulnerable person he was. Somebody who had a sense of humor, who loved his wife, Betty, very much, loved his four daughters while he was living. Betty was pregnant with twins and he eventually has six children, but the four that he met, but he would have loved all all of his, his, his daughters. But I think we think of Malcolm as somebody who's just all... Activism all the time, and don't think of this as a person who loved ice cream, who loved his coffee hot and black, uh, but with some sugar in there too. Who loved to visit the port city of Alexandria in Egypt. Right when he was overseas, he's got a wonderful letter where he says, "My heart belongs in Cairo," and how he fell in love with Cairo uh, in 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 Egypt. So, so this is somebody who's who's uh, a poet. Um, this is somebody who. Is a teacher, a husband, a father, a brother, um, really a lover of Black people and of life, right? And so we do him a disservice when we don't think of Malcolm X as somebody, you know, El Hajj Malik, El Shabazz, who could be one of us.
0: Peniel Joseph is the author of The Sword in the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. He's also the founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin and the Barbara Jordan Chair in Ethics and Political Values. I have learned more in this podcast today than probably my entire undergraduate education. Thank you so much for joining us today on a word.
1: Hey, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Jason.
0: And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.